Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Our passage this evening begins in verse 19 and continues down to verse 1 of chapter 3 in Paul's letter to the Philippians. I suppose all of us uh, in any matter in life have some kind of working models and living examples to observe and to follow after, trying to model ourselves and try to imitate. And that's how all of us learn and grow in whatever area of life. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul um, brings before us models as worthy of study and imitation. He's been calling the church to Christ-likeness. He's been calling us to put on the mind of Christ and to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that call uh, finds in our passage uh, its flesh and blood real-life illustrations in the two exemplary individuals mentioned in the text. Uh, as those who exhibit the mind of Christ, and Paul is holding them up before the church to consider. So we'll read uh, about them, and we'll hear God's word beginning in verse 19 in Philippians chapter 2. And after our reading, we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help and blessing of the ministry of this word upon our lives uh, this evening. Uh, let's hear God's word. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know how you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just soon as soon as I see how he will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have felt it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. Let us find this reading in God's word. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us by the power of your illuminating Spirit of God, shining your truth upon our souls. You would sanctify us and let your light and your truth lead us all the more closer to your presence and pray that your word would mold and press us into greater conformity to Jesus Christ and train us for righteousness. Accomplish our purposes, we pray, 
and give us faith. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. About 60 years after the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the Philippian church, another letter was sent to the same church in Philippi by an elder by the name of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna. Many of you undoubtedly are familiar with him. Polycarp, echoing many of the same things that Paul wrote about here, uh, reminding the church of the privileges and the realities and the challenges and the duties and the encouragements in the gospel, exhorting the church, Polycarp uh, wrote a letter to the Philippians. Uh, Polycarp, as we know, he was a disciple of the Apostle John, and no doubt when he penned the letter to the church, same church about six decades later, uh, the book of Philippians that Paul wrote, part of the scriptures, meant a great deal to his own Christian life as a pastor when he wrote to the same church. And as you know from church history, Polycarp would be martyred, burned at stake to death. And he's well known for that quote where he is um, reportedly to have said, these 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I deny Jesus who is my savior as he stood before the prospect of his death. Well, every generation, God's word remains relevant. Whatever the problems and issues we are confronted with, the same gospel resources and the same gospel principles are given to the church in every age. Polycarp, a couple of generations later, echoed that, and we as Christians living in the 21st century are also instructed by the Apostle Paul's a letter. And Paul here holds up working models, uh, living illustrations, in order to impress uh, first the, uh, upon the Philippian church, but also by um, application to us this evening, the very things that he's been expounding through chapter 2. The unity, the humility, the harmony, the spiritual affections that we are called to in Jesus Christ. And Paul is setting forth these individuals as living demonstrations of those who have put on the mind of Christ. And we see that in Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, if you are an Old Covenant believer worshiping at the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, as you approach the meeting place of God with his people, you would have seen these two massive pillars standing at the entryway. One pillar named Boaz and the other one, Jacob, providing an impressive facade and opening into the temple of God where God would come to dwell with his people. And it is as though Timothy and Epaphroditus, as servants of Christ, were presented here like these pillars, the pillars of the church by their service to the church, pillars of the new covenant temple, such is Paul's confidence in them that while he himself is imprisoned, Paul is sending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church as gospel emissaries. He's commending them to the church, saying to the Philippians, if you want to know what the Christian life is like, what Christian service looks like, then look at them and follow Timothy and Epaphroditus around. Uh, their lives will show you the mind of Christ at work, and they will be like living epistles written by the Spirit of God for you to take up and read. And actually, some, uh, the very same thing can be uh, said of each one of us as believers. It's actually what every one of us should strive for by the grace of God, that 
if Christ Jesus himself wanted to bring a message to somebody, you can ask the question, could he actually send me so that people would see what that message looks like, what Christian living looks like in its most ordinary, everyday characteristics in the way that I live and conduct myself? Could my Savior use me as a living illustration of how the gospel works, both in its indicatives and in its commands? And here we have two examples, two living epistles to be taken up and read and copied and repeated. And I want this evening to expound these two letters, living models set before us this evening. First, look at what Paul says about Timothy in verses 20 through 24. Timothy, Paul describes, was his son in the faith. That's a reminder to us that in Jesus Christ, all of us have spiritual fathers, fathers who have brought us along in the faith. Uh, Not only uh, are we given birth in the church, but in spiritual things, we are truly nurtured and brought to spiritual maturity within the context of the church. And God uses people in our lives in order to show us the ways of the Lord more fully to encourage us, to bring us from spiritual infancy to mature manhood by spiritual nourishment, by examples. And Paul here commanding Timothy is setting him forth, reminding that the relationship uh, spiritually has gotten to a point where Paul has every confidence in Timothy as his son. You tend to send out your best people, whether you are running a business or you are in the Church of Christ, you tend to send out your best people out on an important mission. And Paul says he hopes to send Timothy to the Philippian church as a messenger. Such was his confidence in Timothy as his son in the faith. Three things Paul mentions about Timothy that marks out his very qualities. I want you to see them in our text first. Paul draws our attention to Timothy's like-mindedness. Verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like him. He's genuinely interested in and concerned for the welfares of the people of God. I have no one like him, Paul says. It's not so much that Paul is saying to the Philippians that Timothy is one of a kind. No one is like him. But what Timothy is communicating there is that Rather, I have no one who is like-minded with me. I have no one like him. In fact, he's drawing our attention to the beginning of this chapter, verses 2 through 4, where Paul lays down these very qualities. Timothy shared with Paul a unity of mind, a spiritual unity of conviction and purpose. What he described back in verse 2, in terms of being in full accord and of one mind, having the same mind and being of one soul. And Timothy is like that. I have no one I am like-minded with like Timothy. If you think about Timothy, it's quite surprising. Timothy doesn't look the part. He's known for his timidity. He's very awkward, not a type A personality. Paul has to go out of his way to tell the Corinthian church, at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, to put him at ease in sending him to the church. And yet, nonetheless, Paul is commanding Timothy. He's like-minded. He's put on the mind of Jesus Christ, and I'm sending him to you. 
a reminder to you believers that despite whatever limitations you may have or you may feel that you have, uh, usefulness and fruitfulness in the kingdom of God depends not so much on your strength as it does on likeness to Jesus Christ. And that's what the uh, primary thing known about Timothy. I have no one like-minded like Timothy. Then secondly, Paul says uh, Timothy uh, is self-forgetful. He's known for selflessness, which is really a byproduct of the first, the mind of Christ. Now, if you think about in terms of the uh, law of gravity, What are the natural laws of gravity in the human heart that you see all around you, you see even remaining in you, which the gospel begins to reverse in you? The laws of gravity in the human heart that you are self-obsessed. But rather, Paul says, Timothy is absorbed with the needs of others. Verse 21, they they all look to their own interests. And Paul is not speaking about the world. He's speaking about those within the church. They all look to their interests. Verse 21, Timothy looks to the interest of Jesus Christ. He's so emptied of self that he's selfless. He's taken up with the concerns of others. He's taken up with the concerns of Christ. Now, spiritually, selflessness is always a product of Christ's fullness And Timothy is selfless, self-forgetful, because he is Christ full. He is full of Christ. And thirdly, Paul says, uh, Timothy uh, has that proven worth or genuineness as to his tested quality of reliability. Now, how does Paul know that? Because Timothy has proven that to Paul. Along the timeline, by this point, Timothy would have served Paul in the gospel for about 10 years, playing second fiddle, uh, which is always the best test in the kingdom of God of what a person is really in for, whether the person needs a spotlight or the center stage or whether they are faithfully serving whatever God entrusted to them. Is it a real deal, a servant, and Paul says, yes, he has his proven worth. Now, Timothy learned this firsthand from his spiritual father, Paul. Now, think about how sons are trained. And if you had earthly fathers like this, bless the Lord for it. Sons follow their father around and observe how he does things. The father shows ways of life in various different situations. The sons begin to be trained. And Paul's shown Timothy in spiritual things, something of what it means to suffer for Christ, what it means to be a bondservant of Christ. And Paul says, after all these years, there's a track record of proven worth and genuineness about Timothy. You can bank on it. He's reliable. He's not going to bail out for selfish reasons when the going gets tough. He's going to stay the course. And that's what a church officer is, whether a deacon or an elder. Remember what Paul tells Timothy later, let them be tested first. 
Let them demonstrate this kind of proven quality and faithfulness, and then let them serve. That's what a member is, actually. Not just a church officer, but a member in the Church of Christ. Let them be servants of Christ. Let them prove their worth in faithfulness by the grace of God. So that's Timothy, Paul says. His... um, Paul's uh, spiritual son. He's proven his worth. He's demonstrated his track record. And Paul wants to send him, despite all his limitations, uh, this is my emissary, my messenger to the church. Well, how is uh, Timothy raised up and trained in every generation? Because really is the crying need for the church in every generation for young Timothys to be raised up and trained. And we know how God raises up Timothys. It's by the scriptures able to equip a man of God thoroughly. And all the more blessed if uh, Timothys are raised out of the context of godly homes where scripture is taught in Timothy's case by his mother, Lois and grandmother, Eunice. And Timothy was raised by spiritual models and mentors, showing them the way of the Christian life and pouring themselves into younger men. That's how uh, servants are raised in the church. Well, that's the first letter Paul expounds for the Philippian church. But then secondly, look at Epaphroditus, verses 25 through 30, and we learn a few things about him. Paul says in verse 25 that Epaphroditus was a messenger initially sent to Paul from Philippi by the Philippian church in order to minister to Paul's needs in prison. But apparently along the way, Epaphroditus fell ill during the journey near to the point of death. But by God's mercy, Epaphroditus was restored. And by God's mercy, the Lord spared Paul, spare a sorrow upon sorrow. Incidentally, this reminds us, us of what illness and death still mean to Christians. Christians who have the hope of the resurrection. Death and illness are something that brings sorrow and tears. Jesus wept. When our member dies, When a family member has a terminal diagnosis, when a member has a home going to be with the Lord, we do grieve with real sorrow, and yet we rejoice. And God does in his mercy sometimes grant healing and restoration out of physical illness, Well, look at who uh, Epaphroditus is, what Paul thinks of him. Verse 25, he gives, um, it uses really five titles to describe Epaphroditus. He says, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, your messenger, messenger you sent to me and minister to my needs. And if you think about these titles, all of these arise out of the way in which Paul thinks about the church. That the church is a family, he's my brother. The church is a building and a kingdom, so Epaphroditus is a fellow worker. 
The church is a battlefield engaged in spiritual warfare. The army of the Lord standing firm in the Lord, striving side by side, fighting the good fight of the faith. And so he is a fellow soldier. And the church is not just a local phenomenon, but a vast network throughout the world. So he's a messenger sent, and the church is a temple of the living God. So it needs those who will minister, who will tend to its service, will serve. He's a minister to my needs. If these things describe who Epaphroditus is, what really stand out are just with with the case of Timothy, uh, two Christ-like qualities flowing out of the mind of Christ that Epaphroditus exhibits. And you see that in two ways. First, in verse 26, uh, you read this in almost uh, nonchalant description that you almost gloss over it first time you read it. Verse 26, Paul says, For Epaphroditus has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Here's Epaphroditus on his sickbed, on his deathbed, near death. And yet what distressed him, and there the word used is a strong word, uh, used also in the description of the experience of our Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happened in his soul. And what distressed him on his deathbed, what distressed Epaphroditus was not that he was ill, was not that he was dying, but that you heard that he was ill, and so he's worried that you might be worried because you heard that he was ill. In other words, what's taken up his thought process is that Christ-like mindset which thinks about how even your own distress, your own trial would impact others. You see that in Christian believers sometimes going through trials and they are so holed into their own world. But here, by the power of the Spirit in the mind of Christ, Epaphroditus was worried that they would be worried because they heard that he was ill near death. And what an expression of Christ-likeness that is. And then secondly, you see that in verse 30, Paul says, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. At the verb there, risking his life, is related to the word for the money which someone in a civil lawsuit was required to deposit in an ancient Roman world when bringing lawsuit against another party. And that deposit, he would forfeit if he were to lose the lawsuit. In other words, this is a word that indicates some kind of risk involved. And Epaphroditus put his own life on the line as a security, as a down payment in the service of Christ, putting his own life for Paul in order to serve his needs. He's a risk taker. There's no such thing as a risk-free life of faith in the kingdom of God. And he risked even his own life for the sake of Paul. But one thing is certain, whether I die or I live, Christ will be honored in my body, as Paul said. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So Epaphroditus live by faith. Because it is no gamble to rest our hopes on him who is the same. And Jesus calls his people to be utterly yielded and submitted 
to him. He calls his disciples that to fail to do so is actually to lose all. And so that's how the servant of Christ, clothed with the mind of Christ, live. Two, two working models before us. And both of them ultimately goes, uh, go to show us that the issue ultimately is not so much what you do. We all have different callings and gifts and burdens from the Lord and different situations. The issue is not so much your work or what you do. Always the issue is going to be whether we are Christ-like in what we do. And that's ultimately the lesson for you. As you seek to live the Christian life faithfully, the issue is not so much what you do. You're not called to be Timothy or Epaphroditus or even Polycarp. In all our different stations, in whatever menial task we engage in throughout the day, the issue is whether we are like Jesus in all that we do. So Paul says, I keep writing the same things for you. If over the last uh, several weeks the uh, preaching has seemed a little repetitive about the mind of Christ and having Christ-likeness in our thinking, then here Paul says, I keep writing the same things to you, which is safe for you and no trouble for me, as Polycarp himself would do 50 years later, and as that same message would be expounded in the church down through the ages. And he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's not a burden. Rejoice in the Lord. He's great and he's worthy. He's no one's better. He will always uh, look out for your interest as you seek to serve him. So may God make us pillars like that in our quiet ways, pillars to be upheld, to be prominently displayed in its own way for others to imitate and follow and model their living after by the grace of God. And may God give us that Christ-like-mindedness, Christ-like mindset. And may our hearts be emptied of our own ambition and take up with Christ's will and Christ's interests. Well, let's uh, pray together.